Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 53, All She's Got is Our Voices. This week we're discussing season 3, episode 18 of Buffy, Earshot, and series 4, episode 10 of Doctor Who, Midnight. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, so Buffy is first this week. Buffy um, is first. And uh, I know you have a few production things that we are very relevant for us to go over. Um, so before we launch into um, why they're relevant, I guess, um, give us a little bit of backstory as to what exactly happened upon yeah yeah go for it all right so um this episode the the timing this sort of historical timing of this episode is very interesting um i sort of alluded to it last week uh at the end of our podcast that that it it got moved it did not air in the original order and that's because um, originally this episode was scheduled to air on April 27th, 1999. A week before, exactly a week before, on April 20th, was the Columbine shooting. Um, mm. And, you know, just a horrific, horrific uh, event there. Um, and, of course, it, for anyone who's seen this episode of Buffy, you you know there are actually some jokes and whatever um jokes i mean sort of seriously given if that makes any sense um you know the yeah. whole conversation where xander says you know i'm having trouble with the fact that one of us is just going to gun everyone down and interesting yeah. there that he's assuming that it's a gun and he makes there a, seems that seems to be a pretty widespread assumption because they make a couple references yeah there's to it. there's a couple um and then Cordelia says, yeah, because that never happens in American high schools. And then yeah. Oz goes, it's bordering on trendy. Obviously very sardonic sort of jokes, but jokes no, nonetheless. That's that's the part that really shocked me because I, in my brain, um, Columbine was like the first. And, and it's now that we're living in this time where they're frequent and bordering on trendy and becoming more and more part of the culture. But... It's amazing to me that it was enough in the public consciousness that that almost seems like it was written in response to Columbine. Right. But it wasn't. Than... It was written exactly. before. And it was not only exactly. written but but recorded and set to air, you know. And 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 enough enough in the culture that it that it was an idea worth doing an episode about and worth commenting on and all these things, which is, you know, just kind of shows you how maybe Columbine Certainly wasn't the first, but maybe was the first to really be on such a scale that it brought it to the national sort of attention yeah, yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, no, it, and you're right. I mean, it definitely it definitely wasn't the first, and that. But we do kind of go back to that as the you know sort of the ground zero of of school shootings. I mean, that seems to be the one. Um, yeah, yeah, and of course, afterwards you had you know like Michael Moore the bowling for Columbine and that sort of thing. You know that made yeah sort of immortalize the event so to speak but there are definitely others um and so wisely um there's a there's actually a little like five or six minute um interview with joss whedon and doug petrie and jane espenson on um the buffy discs uh talking about this and joss says you know of course we knew immediately when columbine 
happen. Yeah. That this episode wouldn't air, that it couldn't air. Um, yeah. And so it did end up getting um, replaced. It, I mean, it, there was another Buffy episode from earlier in the season. I don't actually know which one offhand. I, I forgot to look that up, but uh, I don't know that that matters so much. Um, but what actually happened is this episode then got pushed out uh, to September, September 21st. And it, mm. it aired right before um, the re-airings of the season finale, uh, which is a two-part, um, you know, story um, leading into season four. So, you know, they kind of like okay. re-aired, you know, so that everyone yeah. re- would remember where season four is beginning. And this was aired for the first time just before those season finale episodes were re-aired. So, um yeah. You know, I guess I would say, like, totally understand why why they had to do it that way. Yeah. I would just say that I really wanted to make sure we watched it in the order this time. One, because... Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I think, obviously, we were far enough away from that particular event. Um, but also, uh, I don't know, maybe we have even become more cows, you know, because there, there, there are... It, unfortunately, Oz is too on point, as he often is. Um yeah, and, and it's more it's even more true now than it was when he yeah. said it over ten years ago. Yeah. So that shows you um how far it's come, you know. But I think the other thing that I want to point out is in Jane Espenson's commentary, um and she wrote this episode and in, in her commentary to the episode, she talks about um the and the commentary was, you know, recorded a couple years after the episode was created and aired and all that and she she comments about how much positive she feedback and i think you can really see um even though at the time people would have definitely been sensitive to the to the airing had it aired immediately after columbine i think Mm -hmm. we can see that there's a very clear message here um especially in in buffy and jonathan when they talk uh about you know this is not the way you handle things this is not the way that people who are almost adults and almost ready to go out into the world and be on their own. This is not how you handle things, you know, through violence and and killing, even if as Jonathan was intending, you know, even if you're only going to kill yourself there, you you know, you have to take responsibility and understand that. uh, Well, and we'll talk about all sort of the lessons of it, but you know, I (laughs) guess just suffice to say that at this point, uh, Jane Espenson, you know, talks about really the positiveness uh, of the yeah. message and the reaction and how she thinks that people tend to understand that when they watch this episode. It's not, you know, it's not in any way glorifying that violence is right. Um, no, you know, or or good or anything, um, you know. So. No. And and I think, too, not only does it not glorify it, but I think that even with the jokes and even with this being, all things considered, a really funny episode, I don't think that's in any way that saying that it doesn't, that it treats the subject matter lightly or oh, yeah. without yeah. due respect. Right. It is a funny episode. Um, but I think it actually, that's not the same thing as saying that it's it's not a good episode or that it doesn't have anything... You know, of, of that it's not treating the subject, you know, cavalierly or, you know. So. Right, right, right. No, there's a real poignancy to the conversation that Buffy and Jonathan have, again, especially. But but even even in the rest of it, um, you know, when when Willow and Oz and Xander are sort of running around, you know, trying to find their suspects. 
there, you know, yes, there are some funny moments again with like Willow interrogating Jonathan for the second time that we've seen, yeah, 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 you yeah. know, and that sort of thing. There are some funny moments, but still there's definitely a sort of, uh, uh, seriousness, a sort of, of intensity, you know, to that and, and realizing that there's an actual real threat here. Yeah. So yeah, I, and, and yeah. it's complex, you know, like we've seen that Buffy can be at times. So I don't think, I think you can be both funny and serious at the same time and, and kind of have, you know, those. Um... Yeah. I, well, I think both of these shows, actually, that's one of their hallmarks is that mix between humor and seriousness, you know, yeah. and that, you know, they can be very, they're always very funny, but that doesn't, not in a way that mocks whatever it is that's being taken seriously. Right. You know, the humor is in the witticisms and in the characters. It's not um, in, you know, in the way they handle sensitive issues. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, like, you know, I mean, we are removed from it, and I can clearly see why it was delayed. Totally understandable. But I don't think there's anything in the episode which is um, particularly offensive as such, you right, know, right. at in certain situations, sure. But I don't think um, that that means that the episode isn't handled well. Right, so right. I think it kind of stands up, you know, yeah. with a little bit of remove when it's not right in the middle of the crisis, it actually um, functions pretty well, I think. Yeah. As a social commentary. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all that said, uh, just sort of, so that's sort of the broadcast portion of the production notes. <laughs> um, I mentioned that Jane Espenson wrote this. Interesting. She mentions that the original idea she had was just somehow one of the Scoobies is able to hear and like uses it to cheat on tests, you know, the, uh -huh. the thoughts of other people. And obviously we see sort of the kernel of that in, in yeah, the classroom yeah, yeah. scene, but um, she's like, yeah, but it became so much more than that, yeah. you know, clearly. Yeah. So that, um, and she said it was also the last idea that she had to pitch <laughs> like for this, um, you know, whatever set of, of, episodes they were yeah. writing at the time she had like all these ideas and this was kind of like the last one she's like i don't know you know someone hears something on it and you know here's other people's thinking and uses it to cheat on a test and they're like oh actually let's go run with that yeah we'll we'll take that and go and she's like really <laughs> that's yeah. that's the one you pick of however many other you know episodes right. that i just pitched <laughs> but right right um, but you know it worked it worked this is actually probably no it works really well probably one of my favorite episodes um just yeah. in general in, in Buffy. So uh, I, I clearly like it. Um, the yeah, structuring no. of it, we'll talk about like sort of the suspects, whatever she, she refers specifically to wanting to have written it as a whodunit um, refers yeah. to Agatha Christie and, and also, you know, sort of the idea of wanting to bring in either new or, or not well-known characters like Jonathan, like Percy, um mm. hogan martin is a new character freddie the newspaper editor editor nancy all new characters that you know uh Espenson wanted to to sort of create and give an idea of um you know that that not not just for the whodunit not just to have people you know to ask questions because you know i don't think any of the writers of buffy ever just have a one you know, level sort of idea in their mind, but also yeah. because the episode does focus on the people we don't see, the people we don't notice. 
Um, and, and very yeah. much, I was actually thinking, um, you know, while watching it, that, that very much goes back to the season one episode, um, with the invisible girl. Right. Um, yeah. Oh gosh. And <laughs> the name <laughs> of the episode escapes me, of course. Uh, uh, ironically enough, I, I, I had written it down and now I can't find it again here in my notes. So Dagnab. Oh, out of mind, out of sight. That's right. I knew it was a twist, um, yeah. on that, but but sort of, you know, again, gives a call back to that same idea of, of what happens to the people who, who we don't take notice of and, and how does their, how does us not noticing them affect us later? So, um, definitely, definitely interesting. I will, um, I will leave off then of the production notes. I think I had one or two other things, but, uh, but, oh, actually, you know, I do want to mention this. Um, as part of the writing of it, I thought it was interesting to note because we've heard a little bit about the Ascension and you've had some questions about what is the Ascension. You know, there we've got a couple minor hints at this point, but not really much. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Esmondson mentioned that in the writer's room, they didn't know either. So you have this uh, scene of Wesley. At this point, they still didn't know. Wesley and Josh. Well, I mean, I think Joss knew. And, okay. and, and he, you know, they, he gave them some hints, but nobody okay. really, cause he wrote the last, you know, he wrote the two part finale. So, I mean, uh-huh. he had to know, but at yeah. this point in, in the writing of, of the season, as far as the writers themselves go, they didn't yeah. know what it was. So that, that whole scene at the beginning with Giles sort of, you know, oh, them, going like, around and then, and then Wesley coming in be. saying, well, it's definitely not the demon Azeroth. Then everyone just yeah, kind of yeah, gets yeah, up yeah. like, you don't know anything that was, yeah. there was a whole like meta element to that. That's sort of the yeah, writers. And Joss, or, uh, uh, Giles is, well, it could be, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love how he just admits defeat in that moment. Yeah. Like I'm not well, even going to pretend that I have any idea. That, But then also when Wesley comes in and starts saying the same exact, he was just saying, then he sort of scoffs, you know, going over the exact same <laughs> stuff. Yeah. 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 So I, I just thought that was an interesting uh, meta element. Well, yeah. And the, it, it, what took up the rest of the minute, <laughs> like our total <laughs> exactly. combined knowledge, you yeah. know, equals, 30 seconds and, and he just material. accepts that yeah touche yeah touche yes yeah <laughs> so um, no that was funny so okay that's interesting yeah that's interesting i guess that gives them as you could see um whether or not joss did it for this reason i could see it being like a way to kind of it, it, as an assist in their own writing because then when they write scenes of the scoobies you know speculating Mm -hmm. there's a genuineness to it you know (laughs) that they're not they're not writing something that they already know about they're actually genuinely among themselves trying to figure out what this is going to be and Mm -hmm. what's it going to mean and everything so you you can almost see that as kind of a creative exercise you know that joss is like yeah i'm just going to hold back this information and see what you guys do with it you know yeah and there are and and joss is very heavily involved uh jane esmondson again calls out a number of times um that that joss rewrote lines or scenes in this episode so i mean you know he like if they got anything wrong or speculated wrongly like he would still kind of be there to to correct it but yeah i think you're right like there's that what is this ascension thing we just really don't know so we're just gonna yeah and you when you hear the frustration 
the frustration, you know, of of Giles and of the rest mm-hmm. is there's an authenticity to it, right. you know. Right. Um, interesting. Yeah. So good. So I didn't mean to spend that long talking about sort of production notes, but um, anyway, yeah. for what well, it is, all very interesting. But we should probably talk about Jonathan a bit. Um, well, we're going to talk about kind of what we are calling the suspect, since this mm-hmm. is kind of a a who done it or who gonna do it, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess who done it is not quite right. Yeah. Um. So you know, the biggest red herring to use a Agatha Christie term being Jonathan. Um. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's a bunch of interesting things to talk about. I guess the one that uh jumped out to me first that I'd kind of want to start with is. You know, with all the stuff of Buffy hearing people's thoughts, mm-hmm. um, with Jonathan even more so than the rest, there's a disconnect between what's going on in his mind and what's going on in his outer, you know, mm. persona. You know, that all of them are thinking things that they, you know, trying to hide thoughts or, or you know, you know, except w- with the exception of Cordelia... None of them say what they're thinking, right? But, um, so all of them, there is a disconnect that our thoughts are private, you Mm -hmm. know, and we choose what we want to say or how we want to act. But Jonathan seems the most sort of repressed, I guess, that, you know, on the inside, he's one of the more, Buffy's bombarded by kind of depressing thoughts. But he, so he's definitely towards the more desperate side of that scale. You know, he's thinking about, how he hates school, nobody notices him, he gets, you know, excited if Buffy even looks at or yeah. touches oh, him, all these me. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and on the outside, it's, are you gonna, are you done with the mashed potatoes? You know, in a very deadpan, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing even particularly, like, remarkable in a, you know, nerdy kind of way, just totally, like, yeah the guy you wouldn't notice, you know, that there's nothing remarkable either for good or bad about him on the outside. He's just sort of there, you know? Um, and same thing when, when Willow's talking to him, you know, we don't get his internal thoughts there, but again, he's giving her nothing, you know, he's kind of a a wall, I guess, you know, in her interrogation. Mm -hmm. Um, and she doesn't, you know, for all that he's, we find out contemplating, killing himself at school with a gun, you know, very dramatic. He must be having some pretty dramatic things going on inside. He's totally deadpan, totally shut down, um, you know, and doesn't give Willow any information during her, you know, questioning. So I thought that's kind of an interesting, you know, um, and you kind of don't, it's this weird layers of, suspicion because you kind of don't suspect him because he seems like the obvious one to suspect you know so you kind of write him off as well clearly jonathan is you know he's the 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 nobody he's the nerdy one we'll look at him first but then well that's too obvious so we're that's too obvious so we're gonna not look at him but then when he has the gun you think oh that's the big reveal you know it was him all along why didn't i see it and then of course that turns out to be you know, a mislead too, because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, he is planning on doing something, just not what we thought. So, you know, kind of an interesting, you know, rather than make him like 
stereotypically, I guess Freddie is more the stereotypical, what I think of as like the Dylan Klebold type, you know, mm. very, you know, very kind of, um, you know, dramatic and, yeah. and more demonstrative in his, Dark you know, in his, and, yeah. yeah, kind of, you know, it's, it's a more misanthropic, you know, way of, you know, presenting himself. Whereas, uh, I guess Jonathan is a little bit more unexpected because he is just there. He's not particularly hateful of anybody. He's just, you know. Yeah, but he also so, does have the the sort of the quiet. It's it's almost the you know. He's never he's never gonna react right. He's never gonna what well. Yeah. In Go Fish, we learned that he peed in the pool, you know, to get back at the swim team. But you know what I mean? Like, mm. that seems to yeah. be like, like his repression, that's the extent that it'll ever take is some sort of passive, aggressive, whatever. But then you also think of the, well, but that's, those are the kind of people who snap, right? And those are the. Hey, you know what? I just learned this, whether they put this in Go Fish intentionally or not, um, uh, you know, wetting the bed past a certain age is sometimes a sign of people like uh, sociopaths apparently Hmm. Uh, there's a trend in sociopathic behavior that a lot of them wet the bed well into adolescence so so whether that was intentional you know i don't know but you know there are those little clues the um so you know i mean I, i think you're right like there's there's for jonathan there's the the idea of, yeah, he's the quiet guy. He's picked on. He's sort of ignored a lot. And so maybe, yeah, maybe you can sort of see him in the bell tower with, with a rifle at some point, um, as we do here. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so you get, and, and, of course, the way they sort of structure that. So, by the way, the bell tower actually had to be built onto that school. Uh, we, we've talked about how the school that they film at is an actual school, Torrance High School in California. Yeah. It's used for other things as well. And they had to literally build the bell tower for this um, episode. <laughs> um, Interesting. But the uh, anyway, so like the whole conversation that Buffy and Jonathan have, I really like the way that scene is structured because – it definitely plays on those assumptions and those stereotypes and whatever. And, you know, gosh, darn it. (laughs) Isn't it again, where going into it, you do have all of these thoughts and conventions and ideas going through your head of, of what's been done. And like you said, they subvert it, you know, they just sort of undercut it, you know, at the end. But, but I do want to talk about that because I think even, even in subverting it, they they address some really good stuff. Um, yeah. You know, with the whole conversation between Buffy and Jonathan. Um, mm. And I like I like the sort of earnestness that they both have here. Um, Jane Esmondson mm-hmm. comments on Jonathan's sweat or Danny Strong, you know, as an actor. Yeah, and, yeah. and just, you know, he, he's this sweating, nervous guy. And, and she's like, it, it just makes him look completely desperate and dangerous, you know. And yeah, this, yeah. You know, because you really don't you, you kind of get the idea that he doesn't even fully know what he's going to do yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, even yeah, in yeah. those moments. Um, but I like that. 
that you get his, you know, at that point is where you get, I think, the finally the honest sort of revelation that he has. And he gets angry with Buffy, right? You know, stop doing that. Stop talking to me like we're friends. We're not friends. Stop using my name. Um, You just think I'm an idiot. And you get exactly the sorts of things that that he must have been thinking all along, the things that lead up to this, you know, um, which we get a small taste of in the lunchroom, but not not much. Interesting that he decides to have lunch before he's going to do this, but you know, <laughs> but that's sort of the way of it, right? Like people do yeah. their thing, and then I don't know. I guess at that point, it's just like, well, it's the next day, isn't it? You're right. Um, it is the next day because it's, it's the next day. It's in the lunchroom tomorrow. That, that right, gonna... right. He sends the letter yeah. and and all of that. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I got confused as to the uh, <laughs> timing of it. But um, but yeah, like, I mean, I think they do a really good job, even though we can say, you know what, Jonathan, you're uh, clearly the action that you're taking is the wrong one. I mean, it's hard to not empathize with that. It's hard to not to not have that moment of. Yeah, I mean, we've all been in that situation of. We just want someone, maybe someone in particular, maybe anyone, you know, to notice what we're doing or or to, you know, reach out or whatever. And and so I I, I don't know. I think they do a good job there. But then you also get, you know, Buffy's side of it. Like, this just is not right. (laughs) This is this is the way that you're going about this. You know. You're expecting things from people that you have no right to expect, basically. Um, yeah. and, and, yep. you know, so I, I, I really like her. So the speech that she gives, right. The, um, Jonathan says, you know, she says, oh, you know, I, I understand what you're going through, whatever. And, and Jonathan says, oh, right. Cause the burden of you being beautiful and athletic. You know, that's such yeah. a crippler. And I just yeah. love the way that she laces into him there, you know. Yeah. I was wrong. You are an idiot. You, my life happens to suck on occasion. Um, yeah. And uh, and then she goes in. Like, this is the part. that Like, she goes from there, right? My life sucks. At least on occasion. I love, like, it's more than I can handle. Yeah. But then she goes on and this is this is the part that Jonathan's failing, right? It's the every single person down there is ignoring your pain because they're too busy with your own. Beautiful ones, popular ones, the guys that pick on you, everyone. If you could hear what they're feeling, the loneliness, the confusion, it looks quiet down there, but it's not. It's deafening. And that's uh that's the thing that I think uh you know, that's really the point there that that it's not just about the way you're feeling like if yeah. you can for a moment get beyond out of your own mind and actually pay attention to other people you'll realize yeah. that that's um you know that's something that that everybody has to deal with yeah well and that's where too jonathan is you know different in the action that he's going to take but you know isn't so different from anybody else because the same kind of disconnect that there was between his thought and his appearance, there is down with the rest of the school as well. You know, they're all, you know, the way Buffy says, 
it looks quiet down there, but it's not. It's deafening. And the way they're all just walking the class and doing their thing, and it seems normal, but she knows that on the inside, each of them individually is freaking out about, you Something. know, whatever. You know, yeah. home, relationships, tests, school, you know, all these different things. Um, you know, each of them is in kind of their own crisis to some extent or or you know some more than others but um but that's kind of I guess the realization is you know you're not the only one who has things going on inside you know we're all trapped in our own in inner thoughts and we can't hear each other's yeah and you know the assumption is that why doesn't anyone notice what I'm going through and I think the answer is everybody feels that way, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to sort of point out is how much this uh, back and forth actually mirrors uh, the, the conversation that Buffy and Cordy have back in season one from that episode I mentioned a moment ago, Out of Mind, oh, yeah. Out of Sight. Yeah. Um, and, and Cordy's response to Buffy was yeah. – uh, Hey, you think I'm lonely because I'm so cute and popular? I can be surrounded by people and be completely alone. It's not like any of them really know me. Um, yeah. They don't even, I don't even know if they like me half the time, you know? And it's just like, and we, we did talk about it a little bit at the time, but it's, it's, it's interesting now that we're, we're saying, oh, you know, Cordy seems to be the one who's most sort of in tune with her thoughts and what comes out of her head, you know, out of her mm. mouth. But, you know, the, the thoughts are still there about, yeah. You know, do people even really know who I am or, or pay attention to me? Well, actually, no, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It, you know, it's true on multiple levels. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, you, you know, I, I, I like that whole scene, the way that plays out. And, and I especially like that Buffy gives Jonathan sort of a bit of his own, well, a bit of dignity. I was, I almost said sort of gives him a bit of dignity back. I'm not sure that he ever had any, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, right. and I it, sort it, of say it that affords him dignity I, that he didn't previously have. Yeah, yeah. I sort of say that humorously, but I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I, I don't know. Whatever it is, she gives him some dignity, whether it's back or whether it's, you know, yeah. the first that he's been, had the opportunity to get, um, you know, by saying, acknowledging I could have taken that by now. Yeah. But yeah, I'd yeah. rather do it this way. And, and of course the way being that he chooses not to do it, that, that it's right and proper for him. It's perfectly, well, I mean, maybe not perfectly fine, but it's, you know, Xander sort of makes the idle joke of, you know, who hasn't idly thought about, you know, gunning everyone down from time to time. And then yeah. he's like, well, I, I said idly, Jonathan's a little more than idly thinking about it at this point. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is he decides not to. And yes, it's because Buffy intervened and yes, it's, you know, a lot of the result of her doing, but she gives him that dignity of being the one to choose of, of, of empowering him really to be able to, to say, okay, you know what? I was wrong. And, and this is, this is something that I'm choosing not to do. So, yeah. Um, anyway, I, I like that aspect that yeah. that shows that she really and, and that even goes back to, I think, what she says to Faith about Alan Finch of, you know, who will mourn 
the losers who are gone or whatever. And Buffy says, I will. And this is her yeah. kind of doing that. But of course, he's not gone yet, right? It's it's her showing her empathy, her heart to bring in your... Yeah. your uh... Well, and she's, and she's doing even better than that. She's actively helping mm-hmm. before there's even someone to mourn. You know, she's right. gone past... He, not that mourning isn't good in in and of itself, but better to prevent the mourning in the first place, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, no, definitely um, good. Anything else with Jonathan? Well, just, you know, we... and then the revelation of how horrified he is that anyone could think that he would hurt someone else. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and that's when we know like wait a minute oh there's still more to go here <laughs> there's more to go yes um, um but yeah we should so, probably spend some time on the other uh suspects or or students or whatever we call them yeah so i guess well um you know as much as jonathan might normally seem like suspect number 1 i think in this particular episode they very cleverly give you even more suspect you know with Freddie, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, did remind me of, you know, the the more, the kinds of, you know, kids you see doing this kind of stuff on the news, in that he's not just, he's not just isolated and unnoticed, which Jonathan also is, but he's actively angry and, you know, sort of uh, misanthropic towards his fellow right. students. Right, and um, when, when he is noticed, it's sort of with despising disdain and yeah yeah, that they're these are just the the mindless sheep that he clearly values his own opinion against the the you know brainless you know people who are just fighting for scraps from the teacher's tables and it's so pathetic and Mm -hmm. all these things um and he writes you know editorials and writes down you know really to see metaphors that he wants to use for them. And, you know, it's kind of the stereotype <laughs> yeah, of breadcrumbs. This kind that's of, deep. yeah, breadcrumbs. That's or crusts or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, and I really liked his, I, all of his articles, which are on the wall. My favorite was apathy rises. No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, which kind of sums up the episode, doesn't it? Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, have a whole lot to say about that other than that Jonathan would be would have been number one on on my list except that you know they introduced this character and he does seem like the kind of guy to just as you say snap and you know take mm-hmm. it all out on everybody yeah. and again they subvert it you know yeah he's kind of you know not you know doesn't have a great opinion of anyone in the school or humanity you know, yeah, he's kind of a jerk, but his, you know, the thing in which he is hiding from, you know, and ashamed of is writing a nasty review of Oz's band, you right, know, it right. doesn't actually come out as violent behavior. Mm. So again, you know, kind of cautioning you against, you know, that scapegoating and, and yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, right. Well, and, but then, but then there's also some, credence to it because he runs he's running away like he's actively hiding oh he's sure yeah, running yeah, yeah. Away. so so you're like well he he clearly knows he did something wrong or thinks yeah, you know he's yeah. feeling guilty about something and and 
thinks yeah. that people are coming to stop him or to get him or, or whatever. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, yeah, no, it's there's not definitely completely, reason. It, it's not, it is, it is a reasonable assumption. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the end, he turns out to be harmless. And I, <laughs> I mean, we can't not mention the review that he gives of <laughs> Oz's band. Um, and they're, you know, playing like their fingers are sausages. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and Oz is, eh, it's fair. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that we continue to get these like little references to Oz and his lack of ability or at least perceived yeah. lack of ability to actually play guitar, even though he's in a band. Um, he he's yeah. always just sort of commenting, you know, like, yeah. uh, is, is it hard to play guitar? Not the way not I, the play. Way I play it. <laughs> or, you know, some bands do like six or seven chords. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so yeah, it, yeah, it's uh, but they're just the fruity jazz bands apparently. No, um, yeah, so definitely, and and I think overall, so you get if to sort of run down like the other suspects. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on each one, but you also yeah. have Hogan, who is the tall basketball player, and and you know we get Oz's question to him about whether or not he places too much pressure and like clearly he places a lot of pressure on himself because he's pressuring himself to get the right answer to this subjective question. You know, um, mm-hmm. you have Nancy who's the, the getting angry when Buffy's reading her mind and kind of anticipating her own, yeah. but on the same token, well, and maybe we should talk about that, that whole scene. Cause I, I definitely want to talk about the um, classroom scene there because I think, I think there's some interesting stuff, but actually maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I, I do think it's it's strange that Nancy is having these thoughts, but not saying them, or at least not saying them right away. And she's getting yeah. mad at Buffy for saying them. So it's, I don't know. I'm curious to know what you think about that. Like, is there, is it because Buffy is saying it so quickly or is there, or maybe should Nancy not be hesitating as much as she is like, you know, where's the flaw there? I don't know. Um, well, it's hard to say cause this is the first time we've seen her. Right. So I don't know. Is she, is she always the one? Is she the star student in English? You know, is she always the one? Maybe she's angry because she's usually the only one answering the teacher's questions yeah. and Buffy's sort of encroaching. That's kind of the, the sense I got from it, Mm. but, um, but, or maybe it's the accuracy of Buffy's, you know, answering is sort of awakening this really competitive spirit in her. Um, I'm not sure. It's kind of hard to, yeah. And, uh, and it's kind of hard to say, but those are just sort of the things that I, I was thinking about, at least with these watchings was like, Hmm, you know, is there, you know, is there a sense in which maybe she sort of, shortchanging herself because she's trying to have like these thoughts but you know maybe she should just be saying what she's thinking like cordelia does like maybe maybe she shouldn't be hesitating and and of course we see what happens when she doesn't she just blurts out race (laughs) you know and it's like like okay yeah that's that's great (laughs) let's move on (laughs) um so anyway um yeah and i liked i liked um buffy's when she's uh, telling the others to go investigate and she goes, that girl Nancy, she's scary. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's all she has for Nancy is just she's right. scary. Right. Make sure you uh, look into her. 
Um, we have Mr. Beach, the teacher who doesn't like his students. Um, yeah. Oh, that was hilarious. Students, if we could just get rid of all the students. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yes, in the school, yes. <laughs> right, that makes sense. That would really improve the school. And you've and you and that's the the funny thing. You've had teachers like that. You've had teachers oh, yeah. that you think they they just hate students. There are absolutely you know? teachers like that. You know. Yeah. Yep. So. They're there for the paycheck. They don't care necessarily. Yep. Yep. They're teaching to whatever minimum standard they have to, and yeah, you know that's just the way it is. Um, and then you pointed out that Larry, uh, mm. who we've seen before, not a lot, but. Um, you know, kind of like Percy, like yeah. we know he's sort of around, but haven't yeah. seen him a whole lot. And, and again, that's kind of subverted too, because you imagine that Xander is going to him. I mean, going to him because they have to inter- interview everybody, but um, Xander's kind of suggesting, trying to get him to say whether or not he's going through any sort of angst over his, you know, sexual identity and everything. And then that's undercut by the fact that oh he's out and proud and having a great time yeah. and doesn't you know everybody knows he's got it. his grandma, he's got his grandma fixing him up he's totally um at peace with yeah. himself so again someone you might imagine you know might be feeling you know inner turmoil and looking to take that out on other people um right totally isn't so you know right. another one that of those was old subversions that was yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So hilarious scene, by the way. Just I'd love that yes. whole when he's yeah. suggesting Yeah, and they always and they always turn up turn around to be more about Xander's own repressions than about anything. Yeah, else. yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> suggesting that maybe Freddie could put a nice yeah. Freddie, the misanthropic news editor, could could yeah, perhaps yeah, put yeah. in a nice announcement about Xander's coming out. Yeah, Can you just something imagine tasteful. something tasteful? <laughs> Could you just imagine yeah. what that announcement would look like coming from Freddie? Oh my God. Um, and then, of course, the the sort of uh, slapstick irony of Freddie running behind them, like while they're talking. Yeah, the, yeah. This just whatever. Um, yeah, no. With them, it's always going to be the misunderstanding between the two of right what they're actually talking about. <laughs> so um, it's funny. But I, I wanted to make sure we at least mentioned all of them. Um, just because we get, oh gosh, and we're not even gonna have time to actually talk about like the main characters. Uh, yeah. But just the fact that, one, that we've mentioned before how Doctor Who tends to be like a re uh, cast, you know, almost like every other episode. Like you, you get this whole new cast of people, you know, uh, yeah. other than the Doctor and, and whatever companion he might have at the time. Um, so this is, yeah, we're literally, I mean, we're introducing as many new people as there are, or reintroducing yeah. people we've only seen minimally before, um, as many of them as there are Scoobies. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got this huge cast of people, definitely to give it that idea of, you know, there are still a lot of people who are just kind of out there on the fringes that we don't see, we don't touch, we don't talk to, we yeah. don't... Um, have an, any idea of what they're doing and that that these are the people that ostensibly Buffy is helping by you know being a slayer and taking care of the evil but she doesn't really know them you know she doesn't right. really know who they are you know when she starts hearing their thoughts it's you know as strangers and and you know there's oh, the guy thinks I'm hot. And oh my gosh, it's disturbing what else he thinks after he thinks I'm hot, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But 
but then yeah. there's also the darker stuff and the worried stuff and and you know the problems that people are facing so you know, I think I actually um, mentioned to you that I thought this felt a lot like um, what Jackie says in Love and Monsters about mm. uh, the people who get left behind. Yeah. And this is this is the Buffy version. Obviously, it's not leaving behind in the same way that Doctor Who is, but it's it's the people on the fringes. It's the people who are, you know, who we don't focus on as, you know, the saviors of Sunnydale or even yeah. the world or whatever. You know, this this is these are all the people who you know, we're kind of fighting for and, and it's easy to sort of lose track of that. And I just want to make sure that that's what we're kind of, that that's yeah. part of what we're taking away from this episode. I mean, there's a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, and you kind of get the point too being Buffy doesn't always take note because like she says, she's too busy with her own stuff. She's mm -hmm. too busy. She's got yeah, a lot of absolutely. pain and angst going on. So you understand that, yeah. but it's also, uh, while she's, you know, focusing on that, she shouldn't lose sight of what it is that she's, you know, fighting for. And mm -hmm. it's all these people who she doesn't really get the benefit of knowing. And so, and I think again, we need to contrast that with the Slayer who doesn't show up in this episode with Faith. Yeah. You know, uh, clearly she's, she's not the one who's going to have this revelation, right? It's Buffy. Yeah. It's your heart again, uh, of, of the trifecta there, the, the triptych. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what I'm getting the name wrong. What's that called again? Soul triptych. Soul triptych. Oh, okay. Triptych was in there. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so I guess just on that note, then let's talk about some of the thoughts that Buffy hears beyond the sort of the random stuff. I think we sort of address that. Um, yeah. Already. Yeah. I mean, of the random stuff, I just like the way it, it starts out kind of funny, a little bit disturbing, but mostly just sort of intriguing and then just spirals down into both the overwhelming cacophony of it, but also more and more depressing, you know, that. Yeah it just becomes about people's despair mm -hmm. and despair that they're not voicing. It's all internal yeah. and everything. Um, yeah. Everyone's but, trying to put on a brave face for everyone else, yeah. despite the fact yeah. that they're all thinking the same sorts of things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but of the more particular characters. Um, so I guess we'll just sort of go down the list here. So let's start with Willow. Mm. Um, and you know, not hugely surprising. Most of Willow's thoughts are about her sort of self-doubt, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, speculating whether or not Buffy will uh, need her with this newfound power. Um, what is Buffy going to, you know, learn? You know, is Buffy going to become more insightful than her? Is she going to know Oz better than Willow knows him? Um all these sorts of things. So, yeah. uh, and I like Buffy's saying, don't think that she, I, I can't help it. Like, it's my thoughts. Like, right. Yeah. How <laughs> they're going to happen whether I something. want them to or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as Wesley shows later, well, I mean, the same scene, I guess, but you can't really repress. Like the more you try no. not to think about something, the more you're going to think about the it. The more you think about it. Yeah. yeah. Not thinking about a bear is thinking about a bear, you know? whatever yeah um yeah now you're thinking about bears yeah, yeah yeah exactly i just made all our podcast listeners think about bears but what kind <laughs> black bear brown bear polar bear koala 
Um, anyway, so <laughs> the wow, that was a weird tangent. Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the the other thing that I would point out too is is again going back to the English class um, when when Buffy oh, yeah. sort of hears the Frank thoughts that Willow has right and. Yeah, you yeah. know, oh, Buffy did the reading, like Buffy understood the reading. <laughs> yeah, Buffy yeah. understood the reading, and it's kind of like, yeah. But you know, that's fair because we've seen yeah. Buffy not really be the best student um, per se, even though yeah. she apparently tests well. Um, yeah, y- you know, there's still the idea that she's not academically; she doesn't have quite the same prowess uh, that Willow has. So, yeah. You know, it's it is sort of the disturbing. You know, what do your friends really think about you? That can be yeah. that can be yeah. that can be uh, a, a little disturbing, I guess. Um, well, and and it and it doesn't, I think, surprise that for someone, you know, that Willow has insecurities, but often that does go with this kind of overachieving. You know that she, mm-hmm. you know, that her thoughts are either, you know it's not cruel that she thinks that about Buffy. Cause like you say, maybe there's truth behind it, you know, but it is kind of, you know, you know, Willow's thoughts tend seem to be a mix of comparing her. It, 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 it all seems to be comparing herself to Buffy. It's either, mm. Oh, Buffy did the reading and Buffy understood it, you know, and that's surprising. And then, you know, that coupled with, well, does she need me? What's she going to know that I don't know? You know, so that seems to be Willow's, most of Willow's thoughts, at least when she's around Buffy, is yeah. how do we compare to each other? Where yeah. do I rank? You know? And and even her um, comparison of, of how Buffy can relate to Oz now. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's not even just about, I mean, it is not even about Not just herself, intellectually, but, yeah. but, but interpersonally, too, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, very, I mean, like you said, I don't know that it's huge revelation into Willow's character, but, but I think the point there being, and, and also with the other Scoobies, but I think mostly with Willow because, you know, they're such good friends that Mm -hmm. this ability of Buffy's to really, you know, see these people's internal thoughts and, and whatever actually is detrimental. It, it's, it's kind of yeah. funny because Willow's seeing this as like something that Buffy has that she doesn't, but ultimately it turns out to be a bad thing. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's in no way. And and even in that moment, even before you get to the part where Buffy can't control yeah, no, it. Even before it's like a physical danger, right? There's, it, it's still unpleasant and it doesn't, it only hurts your relationships. And, it doesn't help. And ironic, them. yeah, ironically, it's doing the exact opposite of what Willow fears will do. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't give Buffy better insight. It, it pushes people away from her. Yeah. Um, so I think that's an interesting. Um, well, it kind of goes against, I guess, to transition into Oz, it kind of goes against Oz's little existential yeah. diatribe which i love but you know if oz says you know we are our thoughts you know and that might be true but that's not all we are you know hmm. is is willow just her thoughts i don't think so i think willow is also what she chooses to be like she can't help her thoughts but she can help 
what she does with her thoughts and she can help which thoughts she chooses to voice. Mm. Um, she can choose to which then act brings, on her thought or she can choose to deny it. So, Which then brings up that question of, is it a bad thing that, you know, other people are not more like Cordelia who just says exactly what she's thinking. Right. You know what I mean? So like there's, like you're saying, like she could have a thought, but then sort of overpower it with reason and say, you know what though, actually Buffy may need me, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can have that sort of initial fear. Oh, Buffy doesn't need me and say, you know, you know what? I still am a valuable member of this team. Yeah. But then you're or like Jonathan, you can have, you can, you can be Jonathan and have the thoughts of I'm alone. Nobody notices me, you know, and those are, you, you are your thoughts, but you're also what you choose to do with that. Yeah. And if he had, you know, chosen to do something violent, that would have been wrong, you know, that, you know, and that's separate than whatever thoughts he's having that he can't control. Yeah. Um, so, but no, I I think you're right. I mean, I think not that I don't love Oz's, <laughs> uh, you know, philosophical tangent, you know, which might have been my favorite thing in the episode. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great. It, no one else exists. Buffy is all of us. We think, therefore, she is. Um, and uh, and his his. <laughs> How zen he is about his own annihilation, you know. Yeah. If, if I am my thoughts, if they exist in her, Buffy contains everything that is me, and she becomes me. I cease to exist, and then aloud, that comes out as, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Exactly. His own, his own destruction comes out as just this little like, oh, that's interesting, you know. Yeah. Not like as an intriguing. You know, he doesn't fan. have like, he doesn't have you know. Talk about disconnect between thought and, you know, <laughs> presentation. Uh, sure. You know, contemplating his own his own nothingness just comes out as this little quizzical utterance. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> contrast that to Xander. <laughs> oh my god. Who, who, of course, I mean, all right, teenage boy. All he thinks about is sex, and you know. Yeah. Well, and here we're back to. Whatever you least want to be thinking is what you're going to be thinking, which is my favorite part about it is the the bit at the end where where he asks Buffy, can you hear anything? And she says no. And he says, just when I was when I wasn't thinking about sex. And you go, but by saying that you're thinking about sex. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) Like that clearly proves that what you're thinking about. Like, so even this is like back to the bear, even by think even by not thinking about it, you're thinking about it, you know. Man, I forgot about himself. the bear. Why did you bring that up again? No. Um, anyway, yeah, no, that's, I think that's spot on. Um, and and so it's either sex or Cordelia. Um, mm-hmm. He's still very clearly not or, over Or Cordelia. sex and Cordelia. Well, I, okay, fair enough. Cordelia not paying attention to him uh, and, and showing her affections yeah. towards Wesley. Um, and vice yeah. versa, the attentions back at her. Um, yeah. So, okay, Cordy, we talked about... Well, hold on. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Real quick. Two things for Xander, which are non-thought related. Um, okay. One, as the body, he, of course, gets distracted in his search to go get Jell-O. Um, and yes. secondly, um, you know, again, with with that idea of him and instinct, 
You know, I the love foreshadowing. that he's the one who has the instinct that it's the lunch lady putting rat poison in the food. And yeah. you just totally take it as a Xander quip. Nobody gives it a second thought, you know. Yep. Um, but that's a case where his instinct is spot on, you know, and, and if they'd only thought to pursue it, you know. So nice little Xander moments there, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, so since we're talking about him, I love that he goes in to get the jello and it's like he, his first look at the lunch lady is, oh no, I'm caught. Yeah. Like it totally yeah. guilty. Yeah. And then he has that moment of, wait a minute, that double take. My yeah. taking this jello is not nearly as bad as what she's doing right now. Yeah. And she has the same exact look of, it's that oh, slow no. burn. It's that slow burn of, wait a minute. I, I love, I love the way when when the first shot on her sort of the the pulled back shot um yeah she's holding the rat poison up and you just yeah. see the flick of her eyes look over and then look back yeah. at him like like she totally gives herself away even if he did like he might not have even noticed what the box had said yeah. you know like just thought yeah. it was like some instant mashed potatoes or something that she was pouring into a big pot but yeah no yeah, yeah. her eyes flick over to it to make sure that you see what it is she's holding yeah, and, yeah, and it and it's and like it's a, a cartoon rat poison on it. <laughs> yeah, not even a brand name of no. you know, not like I don't no, know. No, it might as well be like Acme brand or something. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah, no, I absolutely he's distracted by food. I mean he doesn't other than Larry, does like the other interviews he gives is what, to three, you know, attractive young yeah. women who, you know, he's yeah. trying to get dates from. Yeah. In the, you know, in the moments that he's not obsessing about Cordelia and well, he's probably thinking about sex then too, but, um, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Pretty funny. Um, Cordy, we talked about, yeah, she has the thoughts. No. And that's funny because, you know, we have mentioned that she says what she thinks she has no filter. And here we get that literalized, you know, yeah, she literally thinks I don't see what this has to do with me. And then it comes out. I don't see what this has to do with me. So <laughs> yeah. word for word, she's just voicing whatever thought pops into her head. Yeah. So it's a nice kind of, uh, you know, like physicalization of something we've brought up about the character. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then uh, we can't move on without the big reveal from Joyce. Yes. Uh, which... <laughs> which we sort of knew half of it. We didn't know the full extent of. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I mean, it's been a while since, since I first watched these episodes, of course. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember what I thought about band candy. If I thought they actually had or not yeah. had sex or if, if they had just, yeah, you know... I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I don't think there was anything in the episode that, that, confirmed that i mean i guess you could have you could have i mean there's there's them kissing and going down on the police car you kind of see them back up against the hood of the car you know and they're getting friendly but you know the shot doesn't linger long enough for us to give any right there's no like clothes being tossed or you know i don't think so i think i think it's it's pretty quickly the camera moves away and you know you don't so i certainly didn't know that that had happened okay. you know um so i like her it was the candy we were teenagers <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um 
And and yeah. worth pointing out that Jane Espenson also wrote Band Candy. So this yeah, is her yeah. sort of clarifying or calling so back to, to her call own. Back to yeah, that, like yeah. clearly she's having fun <laughs> with that yeah. sort of uh that sort of thing. Yeah. Um Yeah, and you mentioned before we started recording Giles' great um comedy walk into the tree, you know. Um it's a really funny way to end the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know that Buffy will hang that over their heads, you know, forever, pretty much. So there we go. There we have it. Um, well, we got through them all. Any any last thoughts, final comments here? Cause... Oh, we wanted to mention Angel really quick. Oh, yes, of course. So... He has no thoughts. No, he, he we can't no we can't hear his thoughts anyway. No, kind of a interesting I don't know quite what to do with it, but interesting little idea that his he has thoughts, but like the mirror, they create no reflection in Buffy. So what does that mean? So does that mean that other people's thoughts of Buffy does find reflection in other people's thoughts? Mm. So is there room for interpretation about how much Buffy is participating in the thought process. I don't know. Maybe that's taking it a little too far, but I don't don't know how, I don't know how far to go with the mirror reflection metaphor. So, right. And it's, and it's interesting because this is clearly something that they're just, they're doing for the show. It's not like, like the mirror thing is, I can't think of anything in vampire mythology that, right. That's what I was going to say is like the mirror thing is kind of a classical, vampire mm-hmm. idea that they don't cast reflections so so yeah so what is it i guess you know again you go back to this it's not really a person it's more uh uh you know the the vampire is is more of a presence within a physical body it's not the body i don't, I don't know it's kind of a weird thing because then you have to say well but angel has a soul so Shouldn't you yeah. at least see like sort of an outline, <laughs> you know, if you're not going to see the full thing? I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, from a sort of plot device perspective, it gets them to the point of where they're now finally talking about, yeah. you know, the whole stuff that happened with Faith and Angel and whatever. And Angel repeating what Willow has said to Buffy, you know, several times now, just ask. You know, if yeah. you, if you want to know what's on my mind, just ask. Like, yeah, you know, and and that even sort of goes back to what Buffy's is saying to Jonathan. Like, we're, you know, it's the tables are sort of turned here because it's Buffy saying, you know, what do you think about me? What's you know going on? Trying to figure out, but trying to do that, you know, surreptitiously. It's not mm-hmm. she's not just coming out and saying, "What do you think of me?" She's she doesn't want Angel, I guess, to see her own neediness or whatever. But yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, that's... Well, and if something's bothering you, don't bottle it up. Get it out, you yeah. know? Yeah, So very, um, uh, very interesting sort of, uh, you know, I was going to say flip, but it happens before the Jonathan stuff. So yeah, I guess the other way is where it flips. But, you know, whatever. Definitely, definitely an interesting little... Um, conversation that they have there and and i don't know that we need to dwell too much on the you know creating a reflection 
in her mind mm. and, and that sort of thing. I guess it's, it's sort of like a, you know, if a tree falls in the forest kind of idea. Like, <laughs> yeah. if nobody's yeah. around to hear it, does it matter at all? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know. I also like his uh, his joke about immortality and his oh my gosh. deadpan. His deadpan, that, I'm a funny guy. That is one <laughs> of the most hilarious things that... Yeah. Angel does um, just yeah. just his deadpan in general. It's when he's not trying to be funny that he's the funniest, you know. Or, or, or I guess when he's the most, he's most effectively funny when he's playing it totally serious. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, no. I mean, I I feel like the Angel character in that moment is actually trying to be funny and doing that deadpan on purpose. Yeah, and I don't and I don't mean like it's not intended to be funny because obviously it's a joke, but the delivery of it benefits from the the it totally is sold on the deadpanness yeah. of his, you know his usual you know sort of moroseness yeah. and taciturnity and and whatever yeah. yeah um yeah no that yeah and 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 a little bit of self-parody too because he's aware right. that he's not exactly known as a funny character yeah. so to assert that he is a funny character is inherently funny mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and to assert it with such seriousness, so. The uh, the other thing I just want to sort of point out about Angel is um, that he goes out, uh, you know, to, to fight this other second demon and get the heart and do yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I didn't really pick up on this, but Jane Espenson points out that nobody asks Angel to do this. Like, he just sort of goes out and does it on his own. Hmm. Um, and and I think there's, like, within the story itself, I think the assumption at, is an easy one to make because you get right before that, you get Giles and Wesley saying, oh, we need this second heart and and whatever. Yeah. So so the assumption and is that totally somewhere the in... that's assumption. Giles is like, who's going to get who's gonna get this? And then you cut to Angel doing it. So totally right. the assumption I made was that they called Angel and said, go get this demon. And... Right. But... But I think sort of what uh, Jane Espenson is getting at is that that you have these two watchers sort of talking about it, and then you have Angel going out and doing it, and yeah. and and you get you know one of the very few scenes that we've seen of Angel fighting on his own. Buffy's not there. Buffy's not going to come. He has to you know get this to save her. Um, yeah. I don't. I can't think of a specific example where we've seen that even before. Maybe it's happened, but it's not coming to me, you know? Um, And I just want to point that out because, you know, we've seen, um, we saw in, in bad girls, uh, you know, angel doing the sort of the investigative thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Or was it actually, was it in consequences maybe where, where he, you know, we sort of yeah. saw him lingering, following the police investigation and, and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, there's, there's definitely, you're starting to see the sort of the movement of him, you know, doing stuff on his own. And, and of course yeah. we've mentioned that he gets a spinoff. So I think, Taking the lead I think a little that bit that's at, at this point, I think they knew angel was getting his own spinoff his own show so so i think that's what we're seeing here is is some of that you know sort of building up kind of giving him his own stuff away from buffy even though it's related to buffy it's still kind of on his own initiative and and all of that sort of stuff so 
yeah just wanted yeah. to make sure we we pointed that out um yes but i i no, that is a good point as many times as I've seen it, I've made that same exact assumption, and it wasn't until I listened to this commentary, yeah, uh, this time that that it, you know, that it prompted me to, uh, you know, sort of rethink that idea. So, um, yeah. Anyway, all right, good stuff, and we went over time, but we did. it's not the first time. <sighs> Won't be the last. This conversation about midnight will be really short, though, right? So. Oh yeah, I, I don't really have anything to say about it. <laughs> I think you said to me like you took more notes on this than like any other episode we've done so far. No, maybe not. But what? I was just saying. Never mind. I don't need to repeat it. <laughs> anyway, so production notes. I think you have some. Uh, I do, but I don't have my notes in front of me. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna try to be quick. This is an award-winning podcast we're having right here. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Speaking of awards, um, so <laughs> nice, uh, segue. <laughs> nice segue. So um, this is a Davies episode. Um, he wrote this really, really quickly um, okay. because they had another script which they were going to do, and he wasn't quite happy with it. It wasn't anything wrong with the script per se, but he just felt like. The way I think it was too similar to another episode. He wasn't happy with the overall, you know, mm. arc of how it would work into the series. So basically, he said, "If I can write this basically over a weekend, we're gonna do it. And if not, then we have this other script as a backup." Um, so he pretty much knocked out what most people agree is one of the highlights of his tenure. Mm. You know, in a, like literally like a couple of days. Um, so good for him. Maybe he's somebody who works best under pressure, you know, <laughs> he, I, I can definitely relate to that a bit. Um, so, um, you know, just in terms of production, I just want to highlight some of the sort of weird little quirks of this episode. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously it's companion light, so that's interesting. We haven't had that before. Mm -hmm. Um, it's done mostly on one set and, uh, Actually, um, it's mostly in one scene. Uh, scene nine actually lasts for 42 pages. Um, and I think there are only, you know, maybe a dozen or so scenes, whereas normally there are dozens of scenes in a Doctor Who episode. So mm. um, it has very, a lot of what I think of in drama as unity of place and time and all those sort of classical things sure. so it's it's very theatrical you know you could imagine this being done on stage um hmm. you know because it wouldn't really take much to do it on stage there's not a lot of effects there's not a lot of cutting there's not a lot of sets um it's pretty much all done in one go yeah um, and you and can actually, even you know cut down the number of scenes you know <laughs> to like three or four probably yeah and i still mean get the same Basically, I mean, you wouldn't really have to do much to adapt no. it for the stage. No. Um, and actually, I was Googling something about it and actually saw some YouTube videos of people who have done stage productions of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it can and has been done, um, which is, I think, interesting because so much of the of the show is a lot about monsters and running around and effects and spaceships and all these things. And this is just very simple in its... Uh, what it, you know, the outline of the episode. Hmm. Um, and then a couple reception notes. Um, this is where I was going to 
lead into with awards. Um, so it, it did win um, awards for screenwriting, sound, and editing at the BAFTA Coomer Awards, which is the Welsh BAFTA mm -hmm. Awards. Um, and Davies also had a, a Best Writer nomination at the main, you know, BAFTA TV Awards that year, too. Um, Tennant got a nomination for Constellation Award. Um, it's number 43 on the Mighty 200 poll, which I think is mighty low. Um, I'm interested to see when it they're doing another repeat of that poll since there's a lot more episodes now. Okay. And it's I don't know when it's supposed to come out, hopefully soon. And I'll be interested to see if this moves in the poll. Um, sure. Because I think, you know, I think it re its reputation maybe has grown over the last couple of years, or it deserves to grow. Um, uh, but there was another poll which came out before the anniversary. Um, a website called Net did a top 25 of all, however many, 800 episodes or whatever, or, you know, if you add them all together. And... Um, it was actually number six, you know, so maybe that shows you now after a couple of years how its reputation has, you know, grown a little bit. Um, and it's definitely counted uh, among the scariest. And personally, it gets my vote. Um, sure. You know, this is the one that freaks me even more than the Weeping Angels. Um, this is the one that really, you know, freaks me out late at night. So, <laughs> um that would be my uh, production notes. So, um, where shall we start? Well, so you mentioned that it's companion light. So I guess let's start with just Donna and acknowledge that she does appear in the episode, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. if not a lot. Um, interesting that she decides that she just wants to sort of stay and uh, mm -hmm. like sunbathe or whatever uh you know she's doing um and she i don't know i guess it's it's interesting because you know we have seen you, you know donna doesn't seem to be quite the same hop in the tardis and let let's go as rose and martha was i mean clearly mm -hmm. she's going in the tardis and enjoys going to different places and stuff but yeah. she's not the sort of the thrill seeker, you know, the right, adventure right. seeker so much as I'm cool with staying at the resort and hanging out, you know, in, yeah, in yeah. the pampered, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, well, and we've also uh, mentioned how she's had um, kind of a rough go of it. You know, I mean, she's clearly enjoyed herself. She clearly wants to keep doing this as she's said a couple times but it's not like she's been on a joyride you know she's actually been through a lot of trauma too so you kind of imagine that and and especially after last week where you'll remember that they their original plan was to go to the beach and she was disappointed that they went to the library instead so right. you kind of imagine that this is a little bit of a delayed reward for her like we've been talking about doing something relaxing and now we're finally going to do it, you know? So yeah. maybe this is not to say that she doesn't enjoy doing the other kinds of things, but I think you're right that, you know, she isn't, she doesn't need constant thrills and adventure. She actually does want to, you know, take a break occasionally and relax. Um, so, 
yeah, so instead of going to the beach, it seems they've gone to this, uh, or maybe, maybe they went to the beach too, but they're at this, you know, you know, futuristic space spa instead. Right. Um, so, um, the other thing I want and, to mention. And her idea of fun doesn't seem to be spending four hours in a no. enclosed truck to go see no. some sapphire waterfall thing. No, that's not what she came here for. She came here to be pampered and to lay and, you know, just. Yeah. Have drinks. Relax. And just the poolside be. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Uh, Which I have to say is I'm okay thing, with that, like, too. Like, that's not, I don't criticize yeah. her for that at all. <laughs> no, no. And it, again, it's that practicalness of her, you know, that it, it may be an alien spa, but it's just a spa. You know, there's something kind of ordinary about it, you know, which you could see is kind of appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the other thing I want to bring up before we get to the rest of the episode with her is... Um, uh, you know, her kind of, what a relief it is to see her at the end, you know? And I mm. think we can kind of talk about her obliquely because I think a lot of this episode is uh, dealing with the, what happens when the doctor doesn't have access yeah. to the things that make him the doctor. And one of them is a companion. So the lack of Donna is very necessary right. for the episode. And so I think just the, you know... The, all the associations of friendship and comfort that come with her at the end. And, you know, voices are so important in this episode, and she doesn't say anything. She just, you know, quietly, you know, gives him a hug. That's, you know, she doesn't, you know, even for Donna, who's very talkative, you know, she's just sort of quietly supportive, I guess. And actually, um, in uh, one of the bloggers that I read, Marianne Johansson, um, pointed out, it, again, to go back to our discussion about, you know, costumes and visuals and stuff, that how comforting she is in her terry cloth robe, that, like, she seems, like, mm. so kind of cuddly and warm and domestic in that moment, you know, like, that it's not in regular sure. clothes, it's in something, you know, particularly um, snuggly, I guess. So, you know, ways in which the visual details sort of add to the... Yeah. The meaning of the moment, I guess. Well, and and I'm just thinking too about back to um, uh, uh, Runaway Bride when we first meet Donna, and she yeah. says to him, "You know, sometimes I think you need someone, right?" Yeah. I, and I think in that instance, it was more like as a restraint, right? Because she had just seen yeah, him, yeah. like to stop with you. the fire yeah. and yeah. the water, yeah. and you know. Yeah. But like, but like here, it's actually he needs someone to help him, yes, and it's exactly. it's. Yes, the doctor is clever, and yes, the doctor, you know, does have a voice, but sometimes he's just not. Yeah, he he needs that help, and we and we talk like we talked about with Buffy. You know, Buffy definitely needs that help too, right? You know, she's powerful and strong and everything, but there's it, it's that's part of why you have a companion. Yes, it's to share things with, and yes, it's you know to have these experiences but it's cuz sometimes you need someone for one reason or another you need to yeah. have someone with you um yeah. and Donna's not with him and and again i mean this this isn't i don't mean to blame Donna in any way obviously you know she didn't know what was going to happen nothing that yeah. happens is her fault but but she just chose not to be with the doctor at that point and he chose to go anyway without her and yeah. and crap happens because of both of those decisions, (laughs) you know? Um, 
or yeah. that or that mutual decision i should say they're not really two separate ones they're just yeah they're, they're kind of they're both agreeing okay i'm gonna go and you're gonna stay or yeah. vice versa um yeah yeah um and i want to get to that when we talk about the doctor is kind of how this is sort of a thought experiment in what happens if the doctor doesn't have access to the things which make him the doctor, you know? Well, let, let's um, talk about the doctor then. Cause I think that that makes well, sense to I, do so. Or are we going to, I have my little rant first, my little bit of okay. research, but I can push that off. No, no, that's fine. That's doctor. fine. Go right so, ahead. Kind of leading into that. I mean, I think clearly this episode is all about the doctor really. Mm -hmm. Um, but I started just, you know, getting online cause I think I've told you this is one of my favorites and I've been trying to figure out why, why do I like it so much? So, mm. you know, when I was taking my notes, I was on the internet kind of Googling lots of different things. And, um, I think I have some ideas about what this episode's driving at. Okay. Um, but so I want to bring some attention to the idea of midnight, um, you know, cause it's kind of a weird name for a planet, which isn't dark, but which is very bright and you know it's kind of characterized by these diamonds and dangerous sunlight and all these things so it you know it seems a little strange to me that they call it midnight you know so what is midnight getting at you know both as the title of the planet and as the title of the episode um so you know just sort of googling associations of these things so you know midnight being you know kind of you know, right now, you know, we think of midnight as 12 a.m., you know, but in folklore, you know, before they necessarily could tell exact time in the dark of night, you know, midnight really encompassed, um, you know, all of night, you know, kind of when, you know, the time between sunset and sunrise, I guess, or at least the darkest time of night and all these associations. The with still it. of the night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, but in addition to being, you know, the darkest part of the night, it's also this point of transition and transformation. So it's between one day and the next. Um, so, it, you know, that's kind of interesting, too. Um, but so the Oxford Dictionary of English Folklore um, kind of talks about what uh, midnight signified, you know, in, in folk tales and you know, uh, stories and things. And it says that in the daily cycle of time, midnight represents the deepest point of negativity when ghosts, ghosts, demons, and all uncanny beings are most active. Um, and, you know, it kind of points out how it was often used in magical rituals and divinations. Um, and, and also that point of transition being part of it that, you know, this survives into modern things like we celebrate New Year's at midnight. So, which has kind of the ritualism, but it also has, you know, some of the, you know, the joy of a celebration, I guess. So it has all these associations. Um, we also get this term, um, the witching hour, um, which is, you know, kind of defined as, you know, midnight basically, but it's the time when, um, spirits, I guess, and witches are supposed to be at the height of their power and most active. So there's kind of a 
magical association of midnight, um, which I think when we talk about the monster in this episode, I think it's definitely playing into that sense of midnight being a point where you are at your most vulnerable and the spirit world is at its most active and usually not in a good way. Um, I also want to bring in this idea, because this is something I want to bring up later too, but there's this idea of um, the stages of alchemy, um, you know, which is kind of historical phenomenon, but, you know, more recently, a lot of people have used it in a literary sense, you know, to kind of talk about, you know, transformations of characters and, you know, using the symbolism of alchemy to do that. Um, so one of the stages of alchemy is the negretto, which we kind of know now as the dark night of the soul. Um, so this is the stage of decomposition when, you know, in preparation for the cleansing and then, you know, the later sort of, you know, purification of the Philosopher's Stone, all these things. So the first stage is the Negretto when things are uh, decomposed and stripped down to their base elements. So this is sort of the painful process which allows you to then be purified. Um, and it has all these associations with, you know, suffering and blackness and demons and all these sorts of things. And it produces chaos and suffering and pain. And this is what sort of prepares you for your cleansing, um, you know, before you go later on. So, you know, uh, you know, then that leads you to Jungian psychology, where it's the stage where people, you know, confront their shadows before they go on to sort of I guess, greater self-awareness. So it's sort of a painful, necessary stage of, you know, all sorts of things, which is then... Sort of like, like a theory, Wizard of Earthsea kind of... A, yeah, so, so kind of in theory, supposed to prepare you for something later on. You know, some sort of change and transformation and greater, you know, whatever, you know, ability, awareness, something. Um... So, you know, all these, all those ideas, I think, of midnight and darkness and magic and all these sorts of things are all kind of related. Um, and I think, you know, I can't say Russell Davies intentionally had any of that in mind when he wrote this, but those are the things that it makes me think of. And I think a lot of them, when you kind of go through those ideas, you can kind of see how they work in the episode themselves. So, um that's my little folklore tangent. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I know I kind of sprung that on you. I didn't necessarily share any of that with you beforehand, but yeah, no, um, I, I sound, sounds good. I don't have any particular response. Um, I think we can just sort of talk about, I guess the planet and the monster and, and all of that and see what may or may not apply. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the midnight planet, kind of weird. So it's like, it's almost like a desert resort kind of place, right? Like, so yeah. it, it, in the sense that it's this barren wasteland, very beautiful, mm -hmm. apparently, you know, made of diamonds and sapphires and, you know, all these precious, you know, made me think of like, you know, from time to time, you'll see like these memes on Facebook that, you know, remind you that it rains diamonds on Jupiter or, you know, whatever kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, 
sounds cool, but I don't think that would be very fun to actually be in. No. Um, no, no, kind of a, a a cool but dangerous environment. Yeah, and so you get um you get like these little hints about it and and you hear about the sun being super whatever radiation like if you step mm-hmm. out into it you'll basically be destroyed. You'll turn to dust like a vampire will and buffy. Yeah. Um You'll get dusted if you go outside. Yeah, and so uh you know, a very dangerous place, a very barren place, apparently, um, mm. but with some beautiful sights and 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 um, you even get that that idea that the resort itself where they're staying wasn't even like it was lowered from space. I think they said. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, very. um Well, Hobbes, I think it is right. Who sa- he says it doesn't have a history. There's which. It's kind of a ridiculous premise. Everything has a history. Yeah. It's just you may not know the history. And, and um, yeah. but, you know, his point is that there there was nobody here really to record the history, I guess, is really what what he's saying is that there's no there was no person or or entity of, you know, a sentient entity of any type to mm-hmm. to be able to come and, and sort of um give it history or at least record its history. And I, I like when Jethro calls him out on that and, and the doctor's yeah. like, actually he has a pretty good point, you know, there out. How, how do yeah, you yeah. know if there was nobody here? How do you know that nobody was here? Like, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting dilemma, uh paradox or whatever. Uh, yeah. Again, again, if it, if a tree falls, you know, that kind of idea. Of yeah. Yeah. How do you, own, how do you know someone didn't come knowledge. and just leave and we just don't know that they were here. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you know, okay, well, well, at least there's no known history, no discovered history of this place. Um, there appears not to have been, but of course, then we find out that that's wrong, that there's something mm-hmm. here. Yes. And we don't know what it is. No. I don't think we ever, do they ever call it anything? Nope. Nope. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, the convention has been to call it like the midnight entity, basically, but okay. that's because of a lack of any terminology. Not for the midnight it. monster. Um, the, not they the didn't. Midnight they didn't monster. go the alliterative route. No. Uh, no. That's disappointing. No consensus isn't always the most poetic, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, no, we don't actually learn anything about it at all, really, other than what we see it do so you know going back to what maybe one of the things one of the many things which makes this episode one of the scariest you know is that kind of lack of you know knowledge about what it is even in the end and in the end the doctor doesn't even want to know what it was you know i think that's the scariest thing is he says yeah, we're just going to tell them, why don't you take your le- leisure palace and go somewhere else? Um, which, for the doctor, is quite a statement, you know, because even he is curious, even if he doesn't... He may not agree with the monsters, but he's almost always curious about them. Yeah. So to well, see him saying, you know what, maybe we don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, Yeah, it's hard because you don't we don't have a sense of what form it takes, you know, outside of, of the ship, 
outside of the truck or whatever they call it because yeah. you you know the the implication is that nothing biological can survive on the planet mm. so is the thing not biological and if not what is it is it spiritual but of then some kind? but then the 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 mechanic sees something running you know, and he sees something running and, and you, and something's I mean, rocking the bus, something's rocking the bus and something's making sound by hitting, mm -hmm. you know, the bus. So, yeah. so then the other question is, is it, is it something, is it also made of diamond or, mm -hmm. you know, this, cause I mean, there's, there's planet surface that isn't yeah. destroyed by the sun. So is it made of that, um, it potentially but then if it is how does it get into right. the truck without breaching it right because yeah no it seems to jump it seems like the mind or the spirit jumps through right you know um that seems to be what happens and that it can sense um their respective fear of it yeah uh you know through the metal of of the truck itself yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and I mean, and it rips off the whole front cab somehow. Yes. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's, there seems to be a physical presence, but we don't know that for sure because we never see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I think that's one of the most effective things is when, what, what is the mechanic's name? Claude, when he's pointing to something. I try to look every single, and I know I'm not going to see anything. I know there's nothing there, but every single time when he's going, look, 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 there it is. Yeah, maybe going, there's an extra shimmer I'm, or something. I'm, I'm going, like, looking desperately to see if there's there's something in you that just wants to see what this thing is so bad. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah, that's very intriguing. Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, it makes it, it it's much scarier because, you don't know um, what it is. And, and, you know, and it's funny because we just touched on this in, in our little anniversary episode when we were talking about how how the written word, you know, the best sort of books that you read create your own visions of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the same sort of thing here. Like everyone has their own sort of personalized, subjective fear yeah. of what is this thing actually you know, what form does it take? Not, and I don't mean just physically, but what, what is it? What, you know, and it's, yeah. it's that leaving to the imagination that, that really yeah. allows it to grip you. So, yeah. um, I think as you were reading your, your notes there on midnight, the other thing that sort of struck me is, is, you know, that it is a time of, uh, transition and, that's what we get here. We get a clear series of transitions, mm. um, you know, from outside to inside, from yeah. catatonic to moving, you know, from moving without speaking to, uh, you know, the repetition yeah. uh, to the simultaneous speaking of words to eventually the controlling of the doctor's yeah. words. Yeah. So, the whole the whole thing is about slow but steady transition of the monster into a powerful force. Um, yeah, and to go with like the astronomical metaphors, you even get a kind of waxing and waning of power. You know, like the doctor sort of becomes 
less powerful and the monster more so over time. So you get kind of a yeah, so kind of an arc that way. Yeah, so the decline of one day leading into the rise of the next kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, so yeah, I don't. I mean, it's hard because I don't know what to say about the monster. Okay. Especially like, I mean, other. I, I mean, not that we haven't been talking about the monster for the last, <laughs> you know, ten fifteen minutes, but, but I mean, just like because we don't really know much about it. Like what, mm-hmm. what is, what is it? Well, it's everything that it does during this episode and that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is that re- repeating and we get the doctor's guesses as to what mm-hmm. it's doing. And the, and the other people's once the doctor is clearly not in control of his own speech anymore. Yeah. But we don't, that doesn't answer anything really. Right. Um, yeah, no, and I think I think the the power of it is in the unanswerdness. So maybe to answer those questions would diffuse some of the. Yeah, the but power it's not in my nature to not it. try to answer the question. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem I'm having. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and I think the repeating in itself is kind of interesting. I kind of mentioned last time how. I thought this was Davies trying his hand at a Moffity episode. I want to qualify my statement. I think I, I overdid it last time, and I stated that I thought, uh, you know, that this is definitely, you know, Davies doing that. I actually, you know, don't know that, and it's probably wrong for me to suspect it, but or, or to say that I know it to be true. But um, whether or not he intended it, I think there are some sort of Moffity tropes in this um you know one of them being the kind of less is more approach to the monster you know mm-hmm. i think this falls in line with the weeping angels and the vashti narada that it's more psychological and it's more about what you think it might be and what you don't see rather than an actual physical monster mm-hmm. um but also this uh these ideas of childhood fears and how much the repeating is such a part of childhood, you know, that that's what kids do to annoy each other is, you know, say, you know, you know, go to bed, go to bed, you know, clean up your room, clean up your room. That's what kids do. You know, that there's the kind of like, there's a pointless childishness to it, you know? Um, And Davies even talked about in one of the interviews to demonstrate the concept for the episode, he started doing that to one of the producers. Like, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to tell you about the episode now. And then he just started repeating everything the guy was saying. And after about five minutes, it he was so pissed off and it drove him crazy. So, like, the idea being, like, if you sustain it for a really long time, you actually mm-hmm. do start to go a little bit mad. Um, and what would be the effect on the group? Um, yeah. So, uh you know, I think there are aspects of the monster which are really intriguing, but, you know, I agree. Since we emphatically don't know much about it, um, maybe it's more interesting to talk about the effect it has on other people than it is about the monster itself. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I would say about the monster itself is just, again, the not 
and, and not knowing the purpose of why it's doing what it is, except like, is it, is it intending from the beginning to get to the point where it takes over the doctor or is there just something else going on here? Mm. Like we don't have as much as we don't know about the monster that includes motive. We don't mm -hmm. know what its motive is. Mm -hmm. Is it intending to repeat and to learn or whatever, or is it just sort of doing what comes to it naturally? Right. And right. Like the repeating could be the, the childishness, you know, of it, you know, the doctor kind of suggests, are you learning, you know, is that what this is about, you know, but then you get the hostess who seems pretty convinced that it's going to go back to the leisure palace and spread, you know, she kind of is worried that, you know, it's going to get taken back and infect everybody. So, you know, it could be either of those things. Um, it, yeah, and... it seems to be malevolent in the end. You know, in the beginning, you're not quite sure. Um, in the end, but... it does seem to know what it's doing, but I don't really know. Yeah, yeah. It's well, and that's the thing that's hard for me to say is, I think you're right. It seems to be malicious in the end, but I, how it gets there, if it is childlike in the beginning, then. Is it just simply doing the only thing it knows to do? Mm. I don't yeah. know. I, and that's, you know, again, I mean, it could be malicious all along and it just yeah. is trying to figure out how to manifest its own actions and, and thoughts. Um, and it takes some time to do that. And yeah. and I think that's the easy conclusion to make. But I, I just want to sort of point out that yeah. that's not the only possible. Well, and um, the doctor's pretty much on your side for most of the episode, you know, that he's trying to protect it because he doesn't want to leap to the conclusion that it's, sure. you know, a monster, a villain that has to be destroyed. I mean, right. And in the long to... run, does it matter whether it's malicious or not, given the effect that it ends up having? Well, yes. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, a, a virus isn't necessarily malicious, but it could still kill you. You sure. know what I mean? Like, sure. you know, no, being... but, but I think the doctor's impulse is to protect sky, but also to protect this creature right. that he doesn't know anything about, but he says, you know, it's new and that's fascinating, you know, right. and it's not necessarily, you know, he's trying to reason with it. If it's, you know, whatever you want, you can, you know, I I'll will help, help you, you get yeah, it. Yeah, 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 and and trying to attribute anthropomorphic, uh, you know, motives or whatever to it may just be wrong to begin with. So, uh, yeah, I understand that. It's the accepting <laughs> of that that is the hard part. But we can move on. Um, okay. To talk about the 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 effect, as you say, maybe that's more about what we're supposed to be taking away from this and or, I, I or think, are able to I maybe supposed to like isn't I, the right I, way but i do think that i'm not saying the monster isn't interesting but i think this falls in with um i've always kind of thought of this episode as the doctor who version of like lord of the flies you know that this is the <laughs> big you know or, yeah. or even the one that came to me this the time was the crucible yeah, and, and bo in both Lord of the Flies and The Crucible, you know, you get these themes of 
people externalizing monsters, which are internal, you know, like, is there, you know, really a monster in Lord of the Flies? Maybe, but maybe it's just the kids, right. you know, like, that's kind of the takeaway. And same thing, you know, in The Crucible is, you know, this idea of scapegoating and, you know, uh, externalization and everything and who are really the monsters in the situation. So I'm not saying that there isn't a monster at all, because clearly there is. But I think the real monster of this episode is what happens to the people. <laughs> this is about yeah. the most, you know, there's a streak of pessimism in Davies, and this is it at its darkest, I think. Okay. Um, and this is probably where, and he kind of saw this as the, flip side of something like Voyage of the Damned, where in that he wanted people to be self-sacrificial and heroic. And here you see them, you know, kind of trapped in an enclosed space and devolve into their most, you know, uh, uh, evil and, you know, basically animalistic survivalism and everything. Right. They don't so, quite turn into cannibals, but they're like a step shy of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think we probably should spend most of our time on the doctor, but, you know, I think that's part of the point is to have him pitted against, you know, a monster on one side, yes, but human monsters on the other. And they're equally dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's that moment where the doctor is like, oh, Jethro, not you too. You know, because you hold out for a couple of of them who initially agree with the doctor or kind of yeah. seem to side with the doctor who get pulled into the rest of it, right? Um, yeah. And again, there's, there's that idea of transition there too. Um, yeah. You know, they do kind of change their mind or change their thoughts and 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 how they are acting towards the doctor. So the doctor, um, yeah, it's funny cause, cause you, at the beginning, right. You get this. Uh, okay. So the hostess is handing out like the little snacks and earphones and mm-hmm. you know, the, all the media stuff and, yeah. and, um, you know, yeah, he turns off. The, I like, I like when he, turns everything off with the sonic screwdriver and sky kind of gives them that look of, you know, well done. And, yeah. and they sort Thank of have that, yeah. that moment yeah. there. And, and you, you, um, you see, you know, everyone's like, Oh, well, what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to have to talk to each other. And at first, when I, for my first watch through, I was not expecting that to go as well as it did, but yeah. it's like, you know, whatever the you know however many clicks later or whatever it's like yeah oh they're all laughing and joking around and oh it's like a campfire you know kind of thing yeah, yeah, like yeah. they're just sort of telling stories wagon and, training yeah 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 <laughs> and and so that's cool that worked and and whatever um and you get kind of like the whole bonding stuff and and like his conversation with dd and you know here's to push and yeah you know all of that kind of stuff um and the the professor's little lecture about midnight and uh-huh. um yeah so it's it's you know you go from to go from that to the you know 
it's kind of funny because it is the doctor who sort of motivates all of that, right? By turning the stuff off, but then also by suggesting, hey, let's talk to each other. Let's not just sit here in silence for four hours while we drive yeah. out to this thing. Let's do whatever um, and and have conversation and whatever. But then when it comes to the, you know, the later his trying to convince them that there's actually, we just need to kind of be quiet and not say too much and, and wait for the ride yeah. to come. That's yeah. when they start to have the problem. Right. 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 Yeah, it is. I kind of never really thought about that, but that is an interesting in the beginning, you know, let's not sit in silence. Let's talk to each other. And yeah. then it flips and becomes the opposite of that. Yeah. If everyone would just shush, yeah. we'd be okay. <laughs> yes. But we can't. And do of that. course, you know, it's sort of like, we were talking about as soon as you say something, you can't not think of it. As soon as you tell a group of people they need to be quiet. Yeah. Well, why should they be never going to yeah. be able? Yeah. yeah. Who put you in charge? Yeah. Um, well, and I think too, uh, that goes in the list of things, which I would say are taken away from him, you know, which are kind of, you know, you know the, the, the companion, you know, um, and one of the other, uh, big things I think would be his voice, you know, and the doctor generally, you know, and I think this doctor especially are very reliant on their voices, you know, their kind of constant stream of chatter and their ability to talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, in one of the commentaries, the sort of Moffitt, man he is. <laughs> I recently listened to <laughs> one and go. Moffat says, Moffat says, uh, his superpower is that he is the greatest gob in the universe. He can sort mm. of talk his way out of anything. And that made me think of the Christmas invasion where, you know, I don't know anything about myself, but judging by the evidence, I've certainly got a gob. So, you know, it's among those things, you know, with the lack of companion, the lack of, you know, any sort of external monster, it's just, you know, something he can't really yeah. defeat or fight or reason with. Um, and then, even his his cleverness and his ability to talk and to reason, all of those things get totally turned against him in this episode. You know, he either doesn't have access to them at all, or they become, uh, you know, uh, tools or liabilities rather yeah, than yeah. assets. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I like that whole scene of where he's doing his usual thing of talking out the problem and trying to think through what what's going on and and like you get the close-up of him and monster sky looking at each other and yeah and she's saying right along with him everything yeah. and you know it's right at the end of there where she then anticipates um what he's going to say next yeah for the first time and yeah. it's yeah and it's and it's it's that very working through, it's the very use of that, you know, vocalization of his, you know, ideas and thoughts yeah. in order to reach what the right conclusion is that he so often does that gives the monster his voice, basically. The power. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that it takes it from him. It, it's able to figure out what he's doing and then yeah. um, anticipates him. And initially that anticipation is anticipation, but then it becomes a control. Yeah. Um, because now it has the voice. Yeah. 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 And I think that was one of the things Davy said too, was that for some reason, having someone say 
the doctor's lines along with him undercuts his authority. You know, if somebody else is saying it too, you mm. know, there's that sense that it, it carries less weight than it normally does. Um, and then you add on top of that the fact that he doesn't have Donna or a companion to back him up. You know, you kind of imagine that, you know, this might still have happened if Donna was there, but it wouldn't have played out exactly like it did. You know, that there would have been someone there to say, you know, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. Right. You know? Which is what he does, you know, to for Dee Dee. And, yeah. you know, um, and and later, uh, is it, who is it? Is it the hostess who also is like, hey, let's listen to what Dee Dee is saying. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I like that little allusion because in a way that's still the doctor and it's the hostess who recognizes the doctor's mm -hmm. voice in the other, um, uh, you know, in the other thing, the monster or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 which is funny. I didn't anticipate that in the hostess. I know we're talking yeah. about the doctor sort of still, but yeah, just to sort of, I like, I did not anticipate her being the one, in the in the final it, it yeah. i mean not that i knew exactly what was going to happen anyway but if i were to guess like who was going to be the one to sacrifice themselves and you know be the one to recognize the doctor it would have been Dee. Dee. she would have been the one yeah. i would have put money on um yeah but it's not it's it's the hostess who recognizes the alonzi and the maltabene yeah and yeah and and, and has Dee, Dee gets it but doesn't have the the courage i guess to do anything about it um sure whereas the hostess you know and i guess the hostess that goes with her being the hostess you know she's it's mm. her job to protect her passengers yeah um, sure she's the one who's the first to suggest throwing sky out um right and and is the most adamant about it but you know lest we write her off as like a cold heartless person she also is paying attention the whole time to what everyone's saying and she listens to Dee, Dee and when she hears like his you know catchphrases you know and realizes what's going on she actually is the one to do something about it um, right and, and there's that there's and that it's... nice moment in the beginning when when it's first attacking them and sky is freaking out and she says you're the hostess you're supposed to do something yeah um, yep. you know, which gets sort of, uh, called back to great effect later. So yeah. I agree. You don't expect it to be her because she's kind of the annoying airline stewardess, you know, like you don't typically, you know, there's nothing about her that's particularly likable or, you know, heroic or anything. Um, well, and the realization kind of goes... that she's as much of a victim as the rest of them too, even yeah, though she yeah. technically is sort of an authority type person <laughs> she yeah. doesn't really have any better uh, idea about what needs to be done and and why should she you know this is yeah. the first time this sort of thing has happened presumably that seems to be the implication anyway yeah so yeah definitely definitely interesting there um And yeah, and so I guess if we're going to call out the hostess for being the surprise, then we have to also call out Dee Dee for being the disappointment <laughs> in that yeah. regard. Um, yeah, because 
man, I really like it would have been so much nicer if she had been the one to sort of not that I'm saying it would have been nicer if she died, but at least if she had been the one to act in some way. Yeah. Um, No. And, and then that I think plays into this, you know, uh, kind of sad look at humanity that the, the, the smartest one, you know, she's clearly the smartest one. She's smarter than professor Hobbes. That's for sure. And but she's as ineffectual as he is at the end of the day, you know? Or at least more aware. Hobbes seems to not necessarily be, I mean, it's not like he's dumb, but he seems extraordinarily focused on, you know, sort of like the typical, you, you know, ivory tower sort of, I'm, I've got my little discipline here and yeah. that's all I really care about. Well, and, and, and annoyingly inflexible, you know, that, Right, and myopic, insistent, yeah. Insistent upon whatever it is he thinks he knows, you know. Right. The point when Jethro says, how do you know that, is only one of the many things which he, you know, to talk about repeating, you know, is, is insisting there's nothing outside, nothing can live here, you know. Mm-hmm. The cockpit can't be gone, you know, that there's nothing inside her, she's just sick, you know. And, and then at right. the end... He saw it, you know, his observation led him to believe that, you know, that the being transferred to the doctor, you know, none of which is based on any actual observation, just his insistence that he knows what's happening. Right. All of all of his assertions are pretty much false. (laughs) Pretty much, Um, which I don't know what that says about uh, about Hobbes academia or Davies view of academia, you know, but Didi is supposed to be. I think observant in the ways that he's not, she actually does base her opinion on what, you know, happens around her. Um, you know, that she is as much against the doctor as anybody else up until she notices that the pattern doesn't quite fit to what they think it is, you know, that, um, it's, and it's that he that, anticipated it's not that it. he's repeating yeah yeah it's it's not that he's repeating it's that she's speaking and he's uh you know it's not conforming to the same pattern and therefore it's different so but at the end of the day she is pretty much as useless as he is in terms of rescuing Actually doing the doctor something. so yeah yeah and and in a way i mean he's pretty bad for not seeing that stuff but in a way she that she almost seems even more culpable than him than Hobbes Dee Dee does because she recognizes it and and yet still doesn't do anything yeah um so yeah yeah interesting so okay so to sort of round out the rest of the the passengers here Jethro you know, he kind of waffles um, and already mentioned sort of the not you too <laughs> um, doctor's disappointment there um, yeah. and his parents who, I mean, I don't think I think I sort of side with no, Jethro as far as like not they're really, pretty horrific. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of yeah. understand why he is sour at having to spend that much time with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's really the 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 parents i think who go you know the kind of you know nice looking little nuclear family which goes the most 
you know, sort of beastly, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the ones who kind of seem the safest, you know, mm. who turn out to be, you know, it's the dad that's actually going to throw the doctor out and it's the mom screaming at him to just get it done. So, right. you know, they're the ones that become, I think, the most sort of animalistic in the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, true. And you get that really, oh, talk about wanting to, you know, punch a character. Uh, her, at the end, I said it was her. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. Yeah. Have you ever just wanted to leap into a TV screen and. <laughs> yeah. No, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, you know, and you get the same sort of, I mean, the doctor doesn't ever really give up because you can sort of see the struggle that he has, right? When, when, yeah, you know, as we're realizing what's going on and you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. Now he's repeating. No, wait, he's not actually repeating. It seems like he's being forced to say, yeah you know, these things. And so, um, yeah, you get that, you know, you sort of have that sinking sense of this is the doctor helpless because he really is in that instance. Yeah. Maybe not completely helpless, but I, I think pretty much. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, other than, I mean, you can tell there's can a struggle like, going on at no. least. Like Other he's than, not, he's, it's not like he's given up, I guess I should say. No, no. Like it, the little bits, like you can see physically how tense he is and things like trying to hook his foot across the seat. Like, you know, any little teeny little bits that he can do, but mm -hmm. yeah, his ability to, you know, resist is not much compared to, uh, you know, the power of the monster, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, not not totally given up, but helpless in the sense that if, you know, clearly if the hostess hadn't done something about it, he couldn't have done anything to prevent it. Right. Right. Um, which is another sort of scary thought. Yeah. Just in itself of of him being helpless. Uh, no, and that I think is kind of what I'm driving at with this idea of, you know, midnight and the Negretto is this idea of stripping things down to their base elements and, you know, like taking the companion and the voice and the cleverness and taking all those things away from him. Mm -hmm. Um, even in a way, taking the monster away from him. Right. Um, and, and going through and the struggle being, you may be kind of the point and I'll kind of leave it up in the air what it is that I think he's maybe being prepared for, but mm. in, you know, in alchemy, I guess that's what this, these periods of trial are for is a preparation for something else. Um, but in order to do that, you have to kind of go through, you know, a pretty rough time. And I think this is, definitely the most vulnerable we've seen the doctor at least like you know not just like emotionally vulnerable but like physically can't do anything to help himself yeah yeah it's a in incredibly disturbing 
example of groupthink that we get to see among the uh, passengers here. Yes, it definitely is. Um, and I'll also point out that it does seem to fit the criteria of a cabin scenario. <laughs> um, Strangely enough. So, well, I'll have to ruminate about that because they're, Perhaps with some slight modification or nuance there, but it uh it, it seems to work. So leave it at that. Yeah, well, and it does too in the sense of it becoming more about. I think you talked about in your paper it forcing the characters to have confrontation. You know that right. it's not it's it is about what it is that's invading from outside, but it's at least as much about what's going on inside the cabin. And clearly that's what this is about is, mm -hmm. you know, these people are forced into, you know, into panic and everybody's worst sides comes out. You know, nobody, I don't think anybody comes off well in this episode. Maybe the hostess, you know, even if she's not. She sort of redeems herself. She yeah. sort of, she, she doesn't, that doesn't mean she was likable earlier, but it, at least there, the self-sacrifice you know, mm -hmm. earns her points at the end. But other than her, uh, I think this is a pretty bleak yeah. scenario for what people are like. So, Well, and, and you get to the end of the episode then where the doctor does come back and he's with Donna. And there's this sort of funny moment of, you know, oh, I can't imagine you without a voice. But yeah. Um, there's also the moment where he says multibane and she repeats multibane, which yeah. I mean, clearly is just meant to be, it, it, it's, it's supposed to be sort of a, a, you know, moment of camaraderie and, 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 you know, we're together, everything's okay again, but that, yeah. that disturbs him deeply. Yes. Yeah. And we get the, no, don't, don't do that. Yeah. Um, not in a funny way, like we've heard him say. Right, it's know, kind of a, a a not funny callback to all those times. Yeah, yeah. So it, it yeah, it, there's definitely a sense that he's felt his own helplessness and his own mortality. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm assuming that had he been thrown out that, you know, he would have been, you know, dusted <laughs> just right. like anyone else and that the possibility of regeneration was not there like that just seems yeah that's, that's, that's seems what heavily I, to that's be what the I implication. assume as well yeah 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 um so and not that he's never been in a scenario where he might die for real but it seems like this is more so than any mm. of those other times so yeah yeah no, I think most scenarios, there is at least the possibility for regeneration. And this one, I don't think so. Right. Yeah, I think this is definitely a brush with death with a capital D. So, mm -hmm. um, And it does bring it all back to, you know, his voice at the end. Like, yeah, I think her line about can't imagine you without a voice is funny, but it's also kind of poignant, you know, if we think about what Moffat said about that being his superpower, you know, that, you know, and, and especially again, this doctor being particularly verbose, I guess, um, you yeah, know, so yeah. much of who he is, is about, 
his voice. So, um, you know, it kind of brings it all back to that in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, so you've alluded to that. This is something he has to go through for the future. Um, at least that's what I took you to be alluding to. So I'd be interested to see where that takes where us. Where that goes. Yeah. Um, um, but, oh, well, sorry. Did you have any final thoughts or, or comments? Well, the only, I was going to give our, occasionally we give teasers. So I was going to just tease the next episode and say, uh, if you missed Donna this week, she will be in the next episode in spades. So we can we okay. can all look forward to having her back. Well, that's good to know, I, I suppose. Um, very good. I don't have any particular teasers for Buffy. Um, just other than to say we're coming up on the last four episodes. So, you know, we're probably going to be getting some arc heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, that's true for Doctor Who, too, so. <laughs> oh, yeah? Are we? Oh, uh, right. Well, it's, it's the end of the series, the but then the there's, season. like, the specials, yes. right? End of the season, and then we'll have some a few more specials than normal. So hmm. I will not tease how exactly that all will play out. We'll just let it unfold. Sounds good. All right. See you next week. Mm-hmm.